afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 19 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Woman. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Hannah Flint. And this week we take a look at the complex issues around child rearing in the surrogate and go back to 1978 for part two of the Fair Street trilogy. We give our spoiler-free verdict on Black Widow's solo debut and take a gander at Object Pleasure in Jumbo, directed by Zoe Whittock, who joined Hannah to discuss the film as well. Plus, for this week's hot take, we take a look at the role of critics uh, at international film festivals now that Cannes is up and running again. Uh, But before we get into all of that, let's catch up with the gang. Hannah, what have you been up to this week? Um, I've not been at Cat in Cannes. <laughs> <laughs> to Hashtag say I've... <laughs> send Hannah to Cannes. Uh, can we? <laughs> <laughs> um, what have we been doing this week? Yeah, just going to screenings, I think. It was nice to chat to Zoe Whittock as well. And obviously I've been wearing my English flag with pride <laughs> for once. Because <laughs> we want a loving... It's coming home. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah, so, I mean, God, that was a big deal, wasn't it, the football? So, yeah, that's why I've, I've not really been doing anything that much to write home about, but, you know, our boys on the field have. <laughs> Clarice, have you been watching the footy? No. Clarice. Uh, well, my team's out, so I wasn't watching it. <laughs> oh, France, yeah. Didn't you get knocked yeah. out quite early? Yeah, by Switzerland. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Um. Yeah. I, I. So I. I watched um one film that we aren't able to cover this week, but uh the Truffle Hunters, the documentary about the Italian truffle hunters. I love that film. And and the dogs. Really good things. So yeah, I would just I, I like a little extra recommendation on top of what we're reviewing this week. I would really recommend Truffle Hunters. Um, yeah. It's really sweet, but it, I also found it. Like really heartbreaking as well. Yeah. Like it's so sad because it's it's partially about you know encroaching capitalism and the loss of this great tradition, and like a lot of these guys, like they're both lonely and not lonely because they're you know lacking human contact in a lot of cases, but they are so attached to their dogs. And there are so many sweet and beautiful scenes of them, like, fussing over the dogs. The dogs sit at the table and they feed them, like, spoon feed them. They give them little baths. And, um, like, as a dog lover, that, yeah, made my heart explode. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I shall add it to my to-watch list. What have I been doing this week? I've been enjoying some Fast 9 memes. I'm not sure if you guys saw this. But, wow. Um... The internet had a very entertaining time with putting Vin Diesel's love of family uh, and inserting that into other films. There was one particularly uh, fantastic one involving The Lion King, where basically Vin Diesel coming to save Mufasa as he's thrown off the cliff. That's and you haven't put, haven't put that one together, you, you know, you, you, you have my props. <laughs> that any, was great. Has anyone done... Frodo and Sam, like at the end of Return of the King on Mount Doom as it's collapsing, and instead of the eagles, <laughs> it's Don Toretto, like <laughs> <laughs> flying, flying on that pendulum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just just Photoshop him over the eagles, basically. I would like that. Someone, oh. please do it. Please. There have been so many. There, there was one from Thor Ragnarok 
where Heather says, what were you that got off again? And then it's Dom Toledo coming through on his car with the color family. And it's just, <laughs> it's just fantastic. The internet, this is, this, this is when the internet is undefeated. It's just great. More of this, please. So I'd really entertain your time with that. Oh, I just, my continuing obsession with Loki, uh, I just want to <laughs> shout out again this week's episode, the penultimate one. So good. Oh my God. I'm just obsessed with it. Alligator Loki. I love him. He's my guy. Richard E. Grant just having yes. the time of his life. And uh, I'm very excited to find out who's in that castle. I hope it's Luigi. <laughs> yeah. I I I said this a few times uh, elsewhere. I'm not sure if I said it here, but I believe it's some version of Kang uh, is the man behind the curtain. I'd be very surprised. I I'd be not. surprised if they announced it. If they did, I mean, it might be, but I'd just be very shocked if they did a reveal of Jonathan Majors as Kang or like doing that. I'm not, I'm not saying that we're going to get that, but I do think we're going to get some version of Kang because he he's gone. He's had so many different guises and names throughout his sort of you know conquests like one of the names that he got that, he, that he's gone by in the comments is Immortus yeah um so my prediction is that we're going to get some version of Kang I don't think we're going to get any sort of you know Jonathan Majors reveal I do think that's the Chronopolis though I do think that that's the Chronopolis the castle thing yeah I think that's that, got that something to do with it and they also have that Kang that like the little like little easter egg q-u-e-n-g mm-hmm. Instead of like, because that's obviously, you know what, I, tell, I bang on about this all the time on this podcast, but Lego Marvel Super Heroes 2, <laughs> play this game, and it's basically like, it's like this, because the whole thing is Kang the Conqueror, and it's like, brings it all, so there's a bit in it where like, you see like a sphinx and all that, and it's like the Chronopolis that's created, it's like, there's an Egypt section, there's like Halla, there's that, there's Tillian, there's so much, um, and also uh, like, what Clarice messaged me about, messaged us about, when I'd finally seen it. Throg. <laughs> I read it's not it's not Throg because the label suggests that it's actually um F- Thor Frog of Thunder, which is a different frog. There were two frogs mm. from my understanding. Because Throg is not Thor Odison, it's some other guy who's turned into a frog and then wields Mjolnir. But there is also mm. apparently an occasion in which I think Loki turns Thor into a frog, mm-hmm. and that is the frog in the show. It's oh, okay. very weird that mm-hmm. there are two frogs, Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you really ran out of ideas there. <laughs> Should we do a frog again? Yeah. And just and just to add, I've literally got point two naught two percent. I've just got to find one pink brick, and I've fully completed Lego Marvel Superheroes too. <laughs> like a hundred percent completion rate. I've done every single mini game, <laughs> gone back into done free play. I was like, it took me four attempts to get this mini kit in the Maximus <laughs> Inhumans level, and I got it literally. On, I got it the night England won, so it was a great night for both of us. That <laughs> is impressive. I'm, I'm very. Impre- I didn't. I didn't take you for a game completionist, Hannah. I'm. I'm pretty impressed by that. It's this, oh God, it's my folly though, isn't it? Cause it's, just like, it's like, move on. <laughs> um, Speaking of moving on, uh, we are about to do that uh, with Jumbo. But before that, uh, as we mentioned up top, Hannah spoke to director Zoe Wittock about the film. Hannah, how was that conversation? It was lovely. I love it because I uh, this film, which I saw quite a while ago, 
inspired me to get um, a fringe, <laughs> a fringe bob. And so when I, you'll see when I do the interview, I kind of topped that by saying thank you very much, Noemi and Zoe for giving me that inspo. So, so yeah, we, we, we briefly, we briefly talk about my fringe bob, but the rest of it is a very interesting conversation about object pleasure, about um, how she made it, the inspiration for the film and just kind of making her direct, because it's her directorial debut. So yeah, it's an interesting chat. So I hope you enjoy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm so excited to speak to you. And I don't know if you can notice, but like after watching that movie, I was obsessed with Noemi's haircut. <laughs> so I actually cut myself a fringe. <laughs> I cut you myself did? a fringe. Yeah, I loved it. It's so... It's yeah, like, no, this is my, me trying to be all Parisian, so there we go. Well, it um, actually, it suits you really well. <laughs> thank you so much. I know, I love it. So um, I could talk to you about hair all day, but uh, let's talk about the film. And I I think it's so interesting, like the subject, because it's a, it's a, it's like a taboo subject that I think has been kind of mocked a lot. And when I've watched documentaries, it's always treated in this very, um, yeah, like dismissive way your film is absolutely not that so how did you get to that point and what was your introduction to the subject in the first place um the way that I got to the subject is actually through this kind of attention grabbing like uh big titles you know I was just I I was just scrolling on the internet and looking at newspapers and then I just saw this big title about a woman who married the Eiffel Tower and I was like what okay this is crazy this is this was a while ago so we weren't talking too much about it back then and um I was like hmm let me just click on it and then I clicked on it and then I realized there was really not any kind of interesting information other than a woman married the Eiffel Tower and her name is Erica Eiffel and so you know I didn't do much of it at first and it's only because I started talking about it to friends because it just kind of stuck with me and I was like trying to understand it and I couldn't find much information on, on it at the time and I realized how many like how angry it was making some people just even just talking about it mm. or you know and whether it was people that were tolerant and trying to understand it like me or whether it was people that were completely like this is foolish and stupid and why are we even talking about it and spending time talking about it you know whatever position people had uh opinions it it created intense debates and that so it, it just stayed and stuck with me for weeks on end afterwards until i decided to call erica effel to get direct information from her and try and understand her directly and it's only I think was that I, easy to get in touch with her <laughs> no it wasn't because I you know she had no Instagram and no Facebook and you know so it, it, it was it was really hard but there was um some community you know chats of objecting sexuals and that's how I found her um and so but once I got in touch with her at first she wasn't really okay to talk to me and I when she realized that I was I guess you know a filmmaker and really just looking for an honest conversation whether it was leading to a film or not she agreed to talk to me and it's when I met her at first on Skype before I met her personally but uh, it's when I met her that I got super interested because I was like okay, well, suddenly I, ha I have someone that's really normal, but I was expecting someone that was freaky and weird, you know? It's like, how can you be this normal and then make such an extreme choice as marrying the Eiffel Tower? And so I think the contrast of that 
is what turned this interest into an obsession, you know? Um, And then little by little, I started, you know, finding more research and finding this BBC documentary that appeared a while later. And that's uh, the one I've seen. I remember seeing it a few years ago. And I think there's like that. Is it the clip with Erica? And she's on the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, exactly. And it it definitely is like a, it, it felt very uncomfortable watching it and and yeah and so I suppose did that kind of your intentions with this subject definitely like what you had an idea for this film what it could be but actually it may have changed after you spoke to Erica so it's like oh I want to do it this way now exactly I think that's when I talked to her and after spending more time with her that's when I realized that if I were going to tell a story you know I had to come at it from a different standpoint that what we were getting which was this is a love story and not much more because she kept repeating well this is just a love story and I kept questioning it I was like no this is not just a love story this is a really strange love story and that's okay you know but it is strange and and she's like no this is just a love story and then and and so I realized that if I wanted to tell the story from the from Jeanne's point of view so from the main character's point of view it had to be just a love story it could be questioned from the outside but if from her perspective it had to be told as a love story and what I found really fascinating talking to Erica is how she would spend so much time trying to describe to me what she was feeling and if there's one power that fiction has that documentary in truth and reality does not have is interpretation Mm. and so I figured that I really had something to bring to the subject matter as a filmmaker because I could reinterpret her words and 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 translate them visually and that's what I was like okay well now we're adding something to the debate in this story otherwise it's just repeating what's already being told right Mm. um and that's where I felt, okay, well, this film can be special in a way. Yeah, and I love that it's 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 this both very grounded, but also there's the, obviously you've got what you were saying, like the surrealist element to it that kind of really visualizes that. And I'd love to know a bit more about kind of getting to that place and I suppose your influences on, um, I suppose, like realizing that sort of, I mean, I don't want to like give anything away to like the listeners, but, you know, realizing something that kind of makes it into this magical realist kind of realm. Um, yeah, the, it just, the, the magic, the magic realism and the surrealism is something that I'm very keen to being Belgian, you know, like the surrealist movement does come like painting at least does come from Belgium. And so it's something that I've always been very keen to. And whether it's my short films or this film or my next film, I always try to sort of bring this added layer of um, impression and interpretation of reality that I find is so precious to any kind of artistic soul and so I feel like as a filmmaker it's something that I want to share with the world it's like well we're all seeing this world like that but you know if you just stop and look at it a little differently suddenly you can see something bigger and in something more poetic and so I love to bring that to my story generally speaking but specifically for this one it was very essential to telling the story like I was saying like it's it to me if if anyone was gonna understand Jeanne they had to feel what she was feeling in order to understand 
the tragedy of a potential separation between her and Jumbo and, and the tragedy of people misunderstanding that when it's so clear to her and it's so clear to us because the audience is the only other person than Jan that can actually feel and see and sense whatever she is feeling as she's feeling it. Um, so, so in that sense, like I had to use it, even if I was trying to do a super realistic story, I was like, it's impossible that story cannot work with that, that, and that's, mm. and, and I guess that's what's beautiful, right? When, when the, that kind of fantasy uh, and surrealism is, is called by, by the story and not sort of imposed upon the story, you know? I, I was in Brussels pre-pandemic last year and we went to the Magritte uh, Museum. Uh, amazing, and yeah. So it was kind of like there is that sense of, you know, you think this is what this is and it's not. And I love exactly. that and it kind of fits into it. Had you like, because obviously there's this kind of CGI I, I elements and uh, I don't know, there's this thing, there's a very, there's a scene, I don't want to give it away, but it kind of reminded me of like the Jonathan Glazer under her skin yeah, kind of thing. And I wanted to know like, how did you how did you create certain effects um uh, in it um because had you done again this is like your debut feature so how, were there influences on film were there people that you're working with who have closely helped you to manage to get that across um yeah so first first it was about imagining the scene and like why you know would you go one direction or another and and so this scene which I don't want to give away either like <laughs> Um, but this particular scene that we're talking about, like, has the notion of oil, and I think uh, the, the representation also of sexuality through oil and through, you know, through specific visuals. And why that is, I think that if you look at a machine, there's the obvious, very obvious sort of metal structure, which is cold and strong and hard. Um, but then if you start looking at more intimate and more specific places of the machine that's when you start discovering the oil in between the mechanics and everything and so if there was one intimate part of jumbo it had to be that oil element and so that was kind of the start of the inspiration of like if she's ever gonna consume that relationship you know what will she consume it with or how will she consume it and so that's what inspired that scene more specifically and then just expanded on that element as much as I could um, and then, uh, of course, uh, the funny thing is that, yeah, you're not the first person to, to mention Jonathan Glazer's scene. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, and indeed, it was an influence in a way, but like, it's like, I, I wrote the script uh, and I wrote this scene in, and this, is one, this was one of the scenes that was very obvious from the beginning and that didn't change no matter how many mm. rewrites you did of the film. So it was very early on, like in 2012, I think, or 2013. And I think Jonathan's film came out in 2015. And, you know, I was you trying <laughs> to express that. Yeah, I was trying to express that. And so I was communicating with my producer. And indeed, when Jonathan's scene came out, I was like, well, see, it's a bit of that. And that, you know, which is exactly. And it was great. It was a great tool to for me to communicate with my team what was on what was already on the page so it, I mean, of course there's parallel but it, it's like it's, it's funny. unique in its own way 100 of course yeah like, no, of it's, course. it's very unique and it's really beautiful actually I found it very be I found the, the whole film quite moving but I'm also so impressed that you you managed to get an amazing theme park amusement park I wonder were they aware of the subject matter <laughs> of the film <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, it's it, it's funny because 
uh, we were really afraid of that. We were like, okay, should we tell them? Should we not tell them what the film is about? Because I really wanted that park. And it was the one and only in Belgium that could work for me. And even in France, like we just, that was the perfect one. It had the the waterfall and the lake and it, it, it had this fairy tale element to it that no other park had and this really childish feel to it even though it had big impressive rides um so i could not afford to lose it and so we were like debating for weeks on end with our producers until we we're like well they are going to see us shoot we don't want them to kick us out as we're shooting so maybe we should tell them so we did end up telling them that this was a love story between a woman and one of the machines that we were going to bring uh i guess we did not go into the details of you know exactly all the sex scenes or kissing or whatever uh you didn't send them the documentary of erica <laughs> exactly we did not um but you know the funny thing is that they ended up, they, they came to see the film after it was finished, you know, uh, and um, they loved it. They were so proud. And even after, like, I remember there was a Q&A and they were part of it and they raised their hands and asked questions, you know, as part of the public. This was right before the pandemic when we thought the film was <laughs> going to come out March 2020. Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, they asked a couple questions and, and, and were so intrigued and they came and had drinks with us at the end. And so they were really supportive and, and it's strange because, and that's what I love. And, and, and it, that's in a way, that's also what the stepfather kind of represents in the film. But oftentimes we think that the most open-minded people will be in the city and that people from provinces or like you know uh, countryside will be very closed-minded uh, but if you manage to talk to them emotionally I mean one would be surprised at how open-minded they can be and that's what I love because you would think that you know they they wouldn't have the grasp you know to, mm -hmm. to understand a story that is so outrageous for anyone you know, whether you're from the city or the countryside but they were moved you know and so they were like yes, we love it, you know, and why not? And then they came to me and were like, well, you know, I, I love machines too. I mean, not like that, but, you know, I understand there's a special relationship and and uh, started sharing some of their stories. And I just found that really beautiful. So, I mean, you said that you've kind of had this idea from like 2012, so it's like 10 years in the making. Yeah. What had you been doing um, in that time, I suppose, to prepare you to take this step as your first feature? Um, um, many things. Well, I, I did, I did uh, two other short films uh, in that time, um, one self-produced and one produced with the production company but with very low means. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I had done a little bit of special effects, like on one of my short films, uh, which helped me be more comfortable with them on my feature. But I guess most of the things that I did is like, when you spend so much time writing and rewriting before you can actually get on set, you know, you start being scared about not being on set. So one of the things I did is I, I did a lot of uh, first assistant directing on films so that I could stay in the making and in the process of making a film and keep reflexes you know the you know instincts the right instincts for when my film came along and then 
on the side, I would uh, work as a co-writer or a script doctor, you know, constantly be around story and not just my own story, but other people's stories. Because the best way to rework your story is to work on other people's stories, right? It yeah. then gives you ideas of your own problematics and your own solutions. Um, so that's what I did. I tried to keep both a foot on story and, and, and on production and, and tried and balance that throughout the process of, of waiting for this film to get financed <laughs> the finance that... for this film <laughs> to get so did you so in that time were you so people working on the crew was it people that you'd been working on these short film projects or were they kind of brand new people that you'd seen the work how did you kind of get your team together behind the scenes um that you know it's funny because I, the, the specificity of this film is that because of the complexity of the finance, it, it was, it ended up being financed between France, Belgium, and uh, Luxembourg. And so I had to find crew. I've been to uh, Luxembourg once yeah, <laughs> to well, play basketball. <laughs> I had never been to Luxembourg until I, I shot a film there. You know, so you, know you can travel from one side to the other in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's little crazy. segue, Luxembourg segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I had to find teams from all of those countries. So my, I guess my, my producer and my production designer were, my production designer was actually the first team member that I had and he was from France and I had my editor from France as well. So he was someone that I had worked on short, on a short film before and that's how I found him. Uh, my production designer was a recommendation but he came on board so early in the process that he really became part of the film, you know, and, and was very much a needed element. He also had a lot more experience. He's, he was like 55 or something. So he knew how to work both with VFX, but also with special effects on set effects. Cause we, I didn't, I wanted to avoid VFX as much as we could. Um, and so, and then for the DP, I love Belgium, like I'm Belgium and I love, the Belgian imagery uh, that's coming out is specifically from Flemish uh, Flemish DPs, and so I did not have one specific name in mind, but you know I had a few from that movement that I thought would be really perfect for the film, and so I just started studying a bit more of their work and talking to them, and 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 that's how I found you know my DP, um, and then the rest of the team is just like you know. I guess my AD as well, I had worked on with before, but most of the team was a new team because most of the shoots that I had done were in France, but most of my team was from Belgium and mainly Luxembourg. So I did not know them prior to the shooting. But now you're all bonded through Jumbo. <laughs> exactly, we did bond uh, through Jumbo, but it's quite a stressful thing. You know, it's your first feature, it's complicated, it's ambitious, and you don't know your team. If anyone, if I could recommend anything is like work with people that you already know if you can. And if you can, that's okay. You can make it work, but it just like, it eases the process really. And so did you have Noemi uh, in, in mind when you were writing this? Like was she always already the original person or how did that come about? Um, no, she, um, 
so she actually for for Jeanne, I did a normal casting process, a casting call. Um, at the time, Noemi had done a few things, but she was not as recognized as she is today. Because uh, again, we casted, I think, in 2016 or 2017. And, you know, it took like a year or two to finance the film before, you know. She shot Portrait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So we actually shot Jumbo right before she was casted for Portrait. And just Portrait came out, like, was casted, shot, edited, like, in just a few months, right? So it came out really fast. Uh, before us and we finished a little bit later and then had to wait um, we ended up waiting for Sundance um, so lost a few months there and then the pandemic happened and so we're like a year and a half two years later right um, but so but it, it, in a way it helps the film that portrait happened and that yeah. she made such, such a sensation and that everybody got to recognize her talent and what I love about it is is that she's got such a in portrait she's she's got just such a composed and quiet performance and in jumbo she's a much more explosive character and at the same time she also has that very intimate very quiet side to her but it's it's a um jumbo's performance for her it's some is something that's a lot more in movement you know mm. uh and so it shows the range of that actress who's an amazing actress and whom I love for her courage and her dedication to the character and she's fearless you know in a way yeah I feel like what I love is that the way you shoot it we're never alienated from Jean like we're never as much as she feels alienated by everyone else and I yeah. think that's that was so wonderful and she brings this beautiful like like kind of like childlike wonder and like naivety but also this kind of strength as well it's just that's so lovely. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose to finish it off, like, what can we, like, what can we expect from you next? Obviously, you know, this is taking ages to come out. I'm sure you're working on something next. So what's next for you? Yeah, uh, I am. I, I can't say it, like, you know, yet. But uh, yeah, I'm working on, I guess I'm, I'm working on with my producer, we're working on a new French uh, Belgian film. Um, and then at the same time, I'm developing my first English language uh, movie, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, um, and yeah, and then a couple other things, but hopefully, you know, I, I'm really intrigued about TV. So hopefully at some point, you know, I'll get to the uh, TV as well. But for now, what's like really in place is like a film in the US and then a film in Belgium, uh, France. Love it. I can't wait to see them all. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking to Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. Of love roller coaster uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. uh that was the red hot chili peppers uh if you love that it was actually that was actually uh, featured in the beavers and butthead do america soundtrack so there we go but that <laughs> uh, unfortunately doesn't feature in this film kind but... of flint dropping knowledge <laughs> i remember it so vividly 
<laughs> I actually downloaded it on LimeWire. That's how I loved it so much. Okay, so um, so this is stars Naomi Milan, who you'll know from um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, she and interestingly, this film has taken so long, as you probably heard in the in the interview. But it took so long to make that actually, she'd already signed on for this movie before um, making Portrait. So good timing that she'd got that kind of attention. Mm -hmm. But she plays um, Jeanne, a shy young woman who works at night in an amusement park. She's fascinated with carousels and lives with her mother, an extrovert, Margaret. But um, whereas no man is able to find her place among the rocky and unusual duo, Jeanne starts to grow an odd relationship with Jumbo, uh, the park's... I love her with Jumbo. <laughs> Jumbo. <laughs> Jumbo. <laughs> the park's new flagship attraction. Soon it appears that Jumbo, a striking and colourful merry-go-round, starts communicating with her. And, uh, yeah, hearts start to flutter. Um, so, Clarice, um, what's your thoughts? Is it going to me first? Because I'm the one who's obsessed with theme parks. <laughs> that, was just a, that was just a lovely coincidence. <laughs> yeah, this movie's about me and everyone <laughs> You um, in that haunted mansion. <laughs> yeah, I just love it. My, the love of my life. Yeah, I mean, I I really love this movie, and I think the the biggest thing for me is just that it would be so easy to do like a like a Napoleon Dynamite, like oh look, it's so quirky, so funny, so weird that she's falling in love with this fairground ride. But I I think the fact that that Zoe Wissok actually like took it seriously, and and it's inspired by real incidents, uh, specifically one. Uh, with a, a woman who mar married the Eiffel Tower, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Erica. Yeah, and they, I think <laughs> there was actually an incident where, as well, um, a person with a, with a fairground ride who fell in love with a fairground ride. So these are real things and real experiences. And, like, I know in the media we tend to, those stories get printed as, like, you know, weird little... Oh, so weird. <laughs> but, like, mm -hmm. to those people, it's real. And it's, it's serious. And... and I think to actually just have the courage to tell the story straight and and to tell it sincerely and to give us a character who we can understand and believe in and empathize with is yeah like I don't want to say like courageous but it, yeah it's kind of courageous to go to go out there and, and take this shit seriously and I think the other sort of beautiful thing about it is that it is it's about her relationship with the fairground ride but it's also about like her inability to connect to people and that's sort of what fuels it is that she you know there's a there's a guy that her mother is like why don't you fuck this guy like <laughs> he's right there you should go fuck this guy and you know she kind of feels repulsed by him and her mother doesn't understand that no one understands that and she's not given space to like explore that feeling and that her own sexuality and so like yeah like it like it makes sense in the movie like she can't connect to people but she connects to this object and and i think as as one of the characters points out at one point like you know it's not hurting anybody so literally how could there be any issue with it uh so yeah i really love that and the other thing i loved was the characterization of the of of jumbo <laughs> uh the sound design in this is amazing and I love how I I think there were whale sounds. I'm guessing in the sound mix, it sounded like whale sounds and like a bit of animal sounds, and also like the movement and crunching of metal. Mm. 
which kind of made their relationship more analogous to like there's a very long tradition in cinema of like uh you know woman and mythical animal like king kong beauty and the beast shape of water like it sort of slots her story into that very long tradition by presenting jumbo as like a a mythical beast Mm. uh so i really that was such a small detail but i i loved it it's I just, it's really great. Good job. <laughs> so I don't know why I always end my reviews just be like, it's good. <laughs> good. A high five. Amon, uh, similar feelings towards Jean Ball? <laughs> yes. Uh, I. Oh, yay. I was actually kind of, I was like, will, will Amon love this? I'm so glad that he loved it. <laughs> Look, I can sense quality when I see it, okay? And this is a quality movie. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, I went into this very cold and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall on the, on the pitch meeting for this film because, you know, trying to explain this film to someone just right off the bat doesn't know anything about it. This is a girl who has a romance with a roller coaster. That's wild on the face of it. Um, but Zoe would talk, she makes you feel all the emotions that you'd feel in watching any other romance story. Um, and that's sort of really, really impressive to me. I, I really love the mother-daughter relationship. Um, and I, I love that, you know, they give voice to the flip side of uh, Jian's sort of whole argument and thesis because mother is the flip side of that, right? She she looks at this romance and she, you know, goes crazy. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? This is, this is nuts. Um, but the empathy is still very much with Jian, and I, I liked that uh, Zoe Wotok kept it there. I also uh, liked the cool synth score by Thomas Roussel, um, which I think really, really adds to it. But uh, without a doubt, the MVP, as Khalees mentioned, is Noemi uh, Merlant. I thought she was just fantastic, and you know her sincere earnest performance is why this works um it's, it's the main reason why this works so well so yeah I yeah absolutely i think she she's got just the right balance of vulnerability angst but also this naive naive appeal like there's this, there's a childlike wonder to it but that doesn't diminish her as a woman who's expressing her sexual desires and how she feels i think what i love is how how Wittop balances this kind of grounded perspective of this very real, you know, kind of taboo subject, I suppose, that happens, but then allows, like, it doesn't stop it being, you know, quite romantic and soulful and in the surreal. Like, as she said in the interview, she was very influenced by, like, Belgian surrealist kind of artists like Magritte, and so you kind of got that, especially as they, in the, in the realisation of their the re- growing relationship, and obviously I don't want to go back into it, but another one, you know, Ina mentioned, and she even mentioned, was, like, Jonathan Glazer, like under the skin, you can see that kind of oh like influence God, yes. there, <laughs> like one hundred percent. And then, hundred percent. So I really enjoyed it. I think what's the I think what it does really well is its ability to never alienate us as viewers as much as Jian feels alienated from everyone around her. So we're very much on her side throughout. And and you know, yeah, I think you know. Th- I mean, I remember seeing this. A documentary on this years ago it feels like I feel like Louis Theroux has done something on it as well you know can you just imagine that sort of treatment and uh, and you know I watched a documentary with Erica Eiffel whose name is Fisher Erica Eiffel now it fell um but um it kind of mocks her it, you're kind of mocking her mm-hmm. and and this is like no actually there's real feelings and emotions and 
you know, as you said, Clarice, you know, it's not hurting anyone. Um, so yeah, I re I thought it was very, I thought it was very magical, actually. I loved it. So I guess, guess we can do our verdicts then, can't we? Uh, screen, yeah. stream, or skip. Clarice. Screen. Amon. Screen. Hannah. Screen. Screen! <laughs> <laughs> I would just add, like, one of the reasons why I'm saying screen is the cinematography by Thomas Brulens. Um, apologies if I'm butchering that name, but um, I really love the scenes with uh, Gian and Jumbo uh, in the fairground with, with the lights. Um, it looks really, really beautiful on screen. So, yeah, screen. Cool. So I guess we're going from roller coaster love to baby love. This is the surrogate. I'm a surrogate for my two best friends. That's really cool. I could never do that. Oh, you know, people say that all the time. But I'm like, no, I think you could. Alex just told us the good news. Mazel tov. Hey, how's Nate? Um, Jess is only attracted to emotionally unavailable men. If it's a girl, uh, we were thinking of calling her Sarah. Oh my what God, do you think? So they're not paying you? No, they'll be weird. And they're going to be great dads. The test came back positive for Down syndrome. Baby making has never been more complicated than it is in writer-director Jeremy Hirsch's feature debut, The Surrogate. It's a sensitive insight into the complex issues surrounding surrogacy, uh, and it follows Jess Harris, uh, played by Jasmine Bachelor, a 29-year-old web designer who is excited to be the surrogate and egg donor for her best friend Josh and, Han and his husband Aaron. Uh, but 12 weeks into the pregnancy, a prenatal test comes back with unexpected results that pose a moral dilemma. As they all consider the best course of action, the relationship between the three friends is put to the test. Hannah, what would you make of the surrogate? Oh, I thought it was, it felt like I was watching a documentary. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it, it's so, it's so naturalistic. Um, and this is really apparent, like, I mean, the performances of each of the actors in this, and especially Jasmine Bachelor, um, mm -hmm. it felt like, you know what? It just didn't feel like cinema talk. It felt like real talk and dialogue. Mm -hmm. It feels like dialogue that you would have heard and, and seen. And it's a, it was just very, you know, what, what can I best just compare it to? Maybe something like Spotlight. You know, in the sense that it's kind of, it, everything is just so minimal. It's not trying to have these big melodramatic moments because life isn't, that's not realistic about life. It's sometimes it's just simple conversations with your friends and your mum and dad and, uh, you know, your, your boss about things that are never as inflammatory as cinema often presents it as. It felt like it was just taking all that away and stripping it back. So it felt really stripped back and grounded. Um, and it was so interesting because I feel like the subject, it, I mean, I watched it with my mum last night, actually. And it was so interesting, like how we kept, it made us really think about what would we do in this situation? And there's so many times that we were, when it came to, you know, um, Jess, I was on her side, but then I also really wasn't on her side. And I kind of was talking at the TV and I think this is the type of film <laughs> that really garners a conversation. And it really kind of makes you think about certain situations and whether you're on her side or not. I was very taken by the whole journey um, that we go on. And it felt, yeah, it felt like a very intriguing subject. And also it felt good for, to, for once, like surrogacy is so white. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything we see is so white. So to have like a black woman at the center of it, um, that felt really refreshing. So, ha you know, hats off to Jeremy Hirsch and and, Je and Jasmine Bachelor for really delivering um, on all cylinders. 
Yeah. I'm just I'm I'm now getting a a vision of what Flint movie night looks like with all the talking at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Mine though, you know what? I'm not too bad. My mum often she'll kind of she'll <laughs> she'll she just preempts things. Like she'll say it's like, oh is that that one? It's like we haven't seen it yet. Like we haven't got to that bit yet. It's literally five minutes in. <laughs> Can we just allow the film to play the course? <laughs> I get asked a lot of questions that the answer is like, just wait five minutes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. But there was there's a there's a really good there's a really good scene. Sorry to go back away from my view, but there's a really good scene where it's her and her mum and her dad yeah. talking after she's making a decision. I was like, I was like, oh god, that's you, mum. <laughs> that is you. Cause don't get me wrong. I was very much on her mum's side about a lot of things that she said there. Because I think, in a way, like it really, it feels like this. I don't know. As for, for for all it's worth, Jess is like a lovely person, but she's not living in the real world for a lot of this movie. Like it feels like this very millennial, like I'm going to be this social justice warrior, warrior attitude about morals, which I get, but it's also like the reality of it you're not thinking you're not thinking about what it would take to you know potentially have a child on your own or something like that anyway sorry <laughs> Clarice what were your thoughts on this one yeah agree to all of that you know the the grounded aspect of it I think particularly what I really liked was how messy it is and mm. that's so often my complaint with these sorts of dramas is that it's so neat all the emotions are very neat and everything is like you know, you have argument A and argument B and they and when a scene they'll go back and forth. But this is like there's like fifteen different arguments all floating around in the air and and you know, Jess herself, her feelings change over the course of the movie and it's fascinating to watch that. Um to go from what I really like about her character is that she's presented at first as this like really chilled out, like I'm here to help my friends. That's it. You know, I'm just here to help my friends. I, this is about you guys, like whatever you guys want, I'm happy with. And then when they're faced with this very difficult realization, this very difficult decision, she has this like internal realization of like, Oh wow. Like I have my own opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's messy. It's so complicated. It's so messy. And it's dealing with stuff that, um, well, I don't know if I want to say it's like taboo, but it's, it's, it's shit that we don't talk about enough as a society and that we as a society have not uh, organized our feelings on. And, and especially towards the end, it gets really like emotional and it's, it's really talking about, um, I'm sure I don't spoil it. <laughs> it's really talking about mm. like a, like a a sort of a forefront of of rights movements <laughs> it's like kind of like a, a frontier that that we're not we're not talking about and we're not dealing with and I really applaud this movie for like just diving headfirst into that presenting all sorts of arguments and feelings about it and and all kinds of considerations and to do it so naturally and yeah I want to say Jasmine Batcher as well amazing performance like mm -hmm. to deliver all of that complexity in a feeling of like i super believe she was a new yorker <laughs> i was like this woman lives in new york i i understand i see it um yeah it was great yeah i think messy is the perfect word uh for this film um and you know as as you both said i think the film's greatest strength is that it considers 
all the angles and all the arguments. And it didn't surprise me to learn after this that um, Jeremy Hirsch was a playwright. You can definitely feel that in the screenplay. But just think about the amount of stuff that this film does. We've got prenatal testing, you've got eugenics, you've got reproductive rights, you've got special needs children, you've got parenting, and all of that um, is put into the film. And it's not like, I feel like in other screenplays, which are less good, all of that would just be reduced to what you alluded to, Clarice, which is point making in terms of argument A, argument B, and they would come out in dialogue as such. But it feels so naturalistic and organic that it never, you know, it never comes across that way at all. Um, and I, I really loved that. I loved how it allowed characters to just be bluntly honest, um, even if you disagree with sort of what they're saying, doesn't make you hate the characters because I taken as a whole, um, again, it's just considering all the angles and considering all the arguments and considering how that affects not only um, the character played by uh, our lead Jasmine Bachelor, who, as you say, is fantastic, but how it affects the people uh, in her orbit, not just even the people that she's being surrogate to, which is her best friends. Um, so yeah, I I completely loved it. Um, it really hit me hard. And you know, Jasmine Bachelor again. Um, I I do not watch the Good Fight. I, I've heard that she's really good in that. But wow, like I'm gonna be looking out for her from now on. To be honest, I've watched the Good Fight and I can't remember who she is in it. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Hate to say it, but I don't remember what <laughs> what character she plays in it. She's not. You know, there's like she's obviously not a main character because I would have remembered her. Yeah. I think because <laughs> like, it's Chris so. Jumbo. Is like it's Chris Jumbo, and then there's um, oh, what's her name from Mamma Mia? Christine Baranski, obviously, and then <laughs> De- De- um, Delroy Lindo and stuff. But yeah, I maybe I need yeah. to go back and check good the Good Fight mm. Wiki fandom. Yeah. <laughs> but oh yeah, uh, Hannah, you mentioned that that uh, fantastic. Uh, for me, the the best scene in the movie is that uh, argument with uh, her mother and her father, and Tonya Pinkins in that scene. She plays the mother and she is spectacular in that scene as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, I think I know uh, what we're all thinking here, but it's time for uh, screen, stream, or skip verdicts. Hannah? Uh, screen, for sure. Clarice? Screen. And actually, just to say quickly, the things that this does right were my issues with Supernova. So <laughs> this <laughs> retroactively makes sense of my Supernova review. <laughs> <laughs> and it is screen for me as well uh, i'm not sure if i've mentioned it but jasmine bachelor she's very good in this film um <laughs> uh and now from peers to fears it's time for our second helping of fear street this time in 1978 bad things always happen to shady siders you feel it don't you there's something holding us down who's seen us run one way or another, you're gonna die tonight. There it is. It's not just a diary, it's a map. I'm not letting you die. My sister's still out there. Guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> Fear Street's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 I've created a monster named Sarah Fair. 
<laughs> so yeah, we we talked about Fish Street Part One in last week's podcast. Um, so obviously we we're going to do the second instalment. Uh, this one centers on a group of teenagers in Camp Nightwing who must come together to survive a possessed council's murder spree. The film begins in 1994, where Dean and Josh, remember them, manage to restrain Sam, Dean's girlfriend who is possessed, and travel to see Berman's house for help. Initially reluctant, Berman, played by Jillian Jacobs, our favorite, allows them inside and begins recounting the events of Camp Nightwing with Sadie Sink of Stranger Things fame playing her younger self. Amon, thoughts on Fear Street Part 2? Fear Street Part 2, better than Fear Street Part 1. Oh. I said it. I said what I said. No. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I did prefer this uh, to the first. I, had, I think it's a bit darker. I think it's a bit scarier. I liked the world building um, about Sarah Fear and her legacy and how she came to sort of take root in um, Shady Side. Um, um, I love that it's predominantly a story about two sisters, um, and that and th- and that is anchored very well by uh, Sadie Sink and Emily Rudd, who played those sisters. I really like their interplay, um, and I like that. You know, I think all good horrors do this, but Fear Street they they did this in part one, but and they they did this in part two as well. They're very good at um, taking a character who at the start seems like an annoying character you don't want to spend too much time with and then turning our feelings around on said character. Uh, so in this film in part two, that's Alice played by Ryan Simpkins. And I liked what the film uh, did with that. Also liked the cool soundtrack, which actually reminded me of Guardians of the Galaxy, volume one. And um, you got Cherry Bomb in there uh, for one. Um, and I, you know, as, as a Supernatural fan, I'll always appreciate any film which has Carry On My Way with Sun in it. And this film has that in spades. There's only, two, there's only two things I didn't really like. Um, I know that it's a staple of the genre, but there's one especially dumb character decision uh, to the later on, which I'm not going to spoil, but I was just like, come on. There's no reason for you to put your hand there. None! Um, so, <laughs> so that was annoying. And I do think that the ending strains believability a little bit. Um, I'm not going to get into the details on that, but you'll know what I mean. What do you when mean, Strange believability is ghosts? <laughs> no, I, I no, like, within the world of the film, you know, I can right. sort of, you know let a lot go. But there's one thing that happens in the end. Again, I'm not going to get into spoilers, but it's just like, hold on, like how many? I'm not, well, not going to get into it, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> other, than, other, than, other than those two things, uh, I think I think First Street Part Two was better than the first one. I I enjoyed it. Hannah, do you agree? Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed it more. I think I, I liked how contained it was to like this, this camp. I think it kind of makes it neat. And I like the two, the B, the kind of two concurrent storylines going on, like the axe murder, the, some of the axe killing people, and then like um, then Sadie Sink and uh, her sister kind of having these separate little things. And I like the kind of, I don't know, I like the relationship at play in that one about, about sisters. And I like the gaps it filled in and kind of, little nuggets that we learn from the past that answers questions about who people are in the future. Um, that was a really good, really interesting. But yeah, I, I really like, and I like Jillian Jacobs and I just like her playing this like very like, <laughs> recluse, like reclusive, <laughs> reclusive kind of woman who just, you know, too scared to leave the house. And yeah, I, no, I think it, I think it did well. And it like the homages to Friday 13th. I thought the, um, I like how cruel the bullies are. And the kind of opening sequence, it's kind of they're not holding 
they're not pulling their punches about how mean people are being. Someone who also worked as a as a camp counselor at summer camp, uh, Camp Chinawa in upstate New York. It was a nice. Uh, it was nice, Yeah, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a camp counselor there as well. But um, yeah, I quite I enjoyed that. I like the kind of the kind of the the wet hot American summer elements of it incorporate with the kind of you know it's, it, that's the thing about summer camps like I mean not that I got up to any noise as a counsellor but it's wild like some of the things yeah you, that people um get up to at summer camp it's like send your kids away and then shit's gonna happen <laughs> but no I, I I thought I thought it was um I thought it was great great fun yeah I I don't know I think maybe I still prefer the first one but I really liked this a lot uh what was interesting to me it felt it felt like it was doing the the friday the 13th sort of like late 70s early 80s slasher homage but through the lens of the the 90s goosebumps uh sort of framework so it was a really interesting combination and i like that it really played into some of the tropes so you have like the the virgin whore characters so you have like the really like slutty one who's like yeah meh. and then you have the really you know uptight girl who who's, doesn't want to have sex and restricting but then it like really subverts those stereotypes in in clever ways that feel really modern and feel fresh and and I also like that watching the second one I'm really getting a sense of the the sort of underlying theme of the Fear Street trilogy, which is this sort of idea of, of it reminded me a lot of Derry in it, the Stephen King uh, book, this idea that like the whole, a town being cursed and it becomes this like cycle of violence and despair and unluckiness. And the fact that these sisters, like part of the reason that they're, they're so angry with each other all the time is that like, Cindy thinks that she can get out of shady side that she can if she works hard and she does well and earns money she can kind of break the curse and Ziggy the the Sadie Singh character has a way more fatalistic approach to it and is like we're fucked I'm fucked you're fucked <laughs> that's just shady side baby we were cursed by a witch so can't do anything about it like I really really like that it's like a, a smart sort of in a mixing of of the the supernatural element uh sort of working as a metaphor for i don't know like you can kind of work as a metaphor for like economic depravity and ideas that like you know under privilege under resource underprivileged areas like get trapped in these cycles where people never have the chance to break out and shine it's kind of like a a neat way to do it so i think we're hopefully going to be all in agreement can i add something as well sorry what i really enjoyed as well it's that so often when you have these like slasher movies where you have adults playing children do you know what I mean I like the fact yes. that everyone's <laughs> everyone's child age and even like the younger ones like there's some who clearly look like they're 14 and they're getting like killed <laughs> it's like yeah I I, pre- I appreciate the authenticity of getting people who are probably more closer to the age of the characters they're playing because I think that adds that makes it even more like frightening it's scarier to think that this 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 kind of ghost thing is gonna. It doesn't care how old you are. It's gonna fucking yeah. kill you. So, You're so right. Really Just in like... case you missed it, that was that was Hannah Flint advocating for more child murder on screen. <laughs> Look, I think this is very key to our podcast. <laughs> the sorry... <laughs> there are too many kids in the world, guys. There are too many kids. <laughs> 
Adopt. That's that, there you go. Adopt. <laughs> adopt or murder them at a, a camp. You know. <laughs> Those are the two polar. Those are the they're the poles. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Sorry. <laughs> Let's decide, are we going to stream on, on Netflix or are we going to skip this, Amon? Stream. Stream. And I would also, like, I would like to stream, please. <laughs> <gasps> Streamy. <laughs> oh, you know, like, the, the slasher, there's the killer in Fear Street Part 2 loves to stab people. You know who loves to... Uh, do a little spinny and then she like puts her thighs around a guy's neck and then squeezes it you know who loves to do that natasha romanoff <laughs> we're talking about black widow <laughs> you don't know everything about me i've lived a lot of lives before i was an avenger before i got this family i made mistakes choosing between what the world wants you to be. And who you are. So this might not be the last time we see Natasha Romanov on the sacred timeline of the MCU, but Black Widow is the final farewell for Scarlett Johansson in the character, in, in the title role. Uh, this takes place after the events of Captain America's Civil War, so, you know, Natasha is actually not in my good books at this point because she's just attacked my king, T'Challa, uh, which is why she's on the run. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she is confronting the darker parts of her ledger uh, in this film because a dangerous conspiracy with ties to her past arises and she is pursued by a force that will stop at nothing to bring her down. Uh, so she's got to team up with her sister, Yelena, played by Florence Pugh, and uh, she's got to revisit her past um, and the broken relationships that she left in her wake before she became an Avenger. Now we have a Black Widow spoiler special coming for your ears very, very soon, but we did want to give our quick thoughts uh, on the movie here in this pod. And I've set uh, my fellow co-host a challenge here. Mm. Uh, they have one minute. I repeat, one minute. I'm just getting my timer oh, out this right is now. Too stressful. <laughs> Why have we made it stressful? <laughs> to tell me your thoughts uh, on Black Widow. Now, as Clarice, uh, may, 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 maybe need some time to sort of you know, get her confidence up and uh, get ready. Cry uh, a bit. Hannah, I'm going to put you. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the clock first. You have one minute, starting from. No. Um, I thought this is the movie that I wanted five years ago for Black Widow. I love the fact that it leans in towards the Captain America Winter Soldier kind of sensibility when it comes to like the groundedness of it, but also action sequences. Um, I loved Florence Pugh. She was pretty much the MVP. Um, I thought uh, uh, David Harbour was brilliant. Again, that much needed humour. I love the kind of stoicism and the kind of sadness Natasha and the melancholy that she has because it's in a way she knows. We know, and she, obviously we don't know that this is the end, but we kind of know it's the end. Um, my biggest, I think my, my, I think the biggest disappointment really was how the Taskmaster uh, narrative was played out. I think there wasn't enough there. I think they had two competing kind of villains here, and I think they need more space for that Taskmaster. Um, and I think Ray Winston should have got um, a better acting uh, vocal coach. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> I thought you'd said it first. I just thought Ray Winston should have tried better acting. <laughs> like, oh my God. Harsh digs. I mean, to be honest, yeah. I think he was, I think, I, I, uh, yeah. Anyway, I've had, yeah. I've had my time. I, I see time my time. I see my time. Chris Lockery, you have one minute and it starts from now. Okay, so <laughs> I I appreciate and I liked a lot of the work of the contributors to this film, like Kate Shortland. There was some uh, really nice moments that were, you know, directed by her and not the, the B-unit action people <laughs> uh, that I thought were, were great. But I think my issue with Black Widow is that it really made it so stark to me how underutilized is sort of like, underserved that character has been for the entire she's been in the mcu for like a decade uh, and and she, like so much like bad shit has happened to her like bad writing has happened to her and what was so stark to be is like the second that florence Pugh's yelena comes on screen like instantly she's the more interesting character because we have room to explore like her sense of self and what does it mean to have been uh, basically traumatized by the Red Room, which I think is a really interesting concept that the MCU has not really explored until this point. And now it's kind of too late. It's certainly too late for Natasha. That's me playing your music out. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. I think it's Jurassic Park. That. I don't know why it's Jurassic Park. It's the only song I can think of. I have no concept of time, but I'm done. Yeah. I just, I I think it's, it's, they tried, but it's too late, I guess. I mean, that's a harsh. It's too little, but... too late. But it's not too little because I, I appreciate I could see that they tried oh, <laughs> and right, okay. they're doing stuff mm-hmm. in the movie, but there was too much. There was too much they would have had to do to make up for how underserved that character has been, and and they don't they don't manage to do it. Mm. Okay. Um, shut up! I'm done. I'm gonna go crawl in the hole now. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, Aman, I've got you. <laughs> I've got you. I'll, I'll say wait. Right, three, okay. three, okay. two, one. Start. So Black Widow, uh, I echo a lot of what my co-host is saying. I do think it would have been better said that this came out uh, after Civil War, before Infinity War, before we saw the end of Natasha's journey, because part of the reason why we go and get excited for an MCU film was to see how it drives the wider story forward, and we didn't really get that because Natasha is dead. She got that said, off that cliff. Uh, <laughs> You've had your time. <laughs> Really though, Clarice, what do you do? Um, well, that said, uh, I enjoyed it. I thought the action for the most part was solid, especially in the first 30 minutes. Uh, Taskmaster, we needed more of that character. I was surprised that we got so little. Uh, Ray Winstone uh, is by far the weakest element of this film for me. Uh, his accent is terrible. His bad guy speech at the end uh, slows the movie to a halt. But on the whole, I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, time to spare as well. Anything else you want to add? Boom. There you go. Well, nope. the thing, thing is, we are gonna <laughs> we are gonna go to have a massive deep dive, aren't we, into it when um uh right after this we're gonna record our special Black Widow. Plus, we've got an interview with um Ot Fagbenle, who plays Rick Men- Mason, um, new character. Um, and we, it's quite funny. We do a lot of um uh speculating and manifesting <laughs> for his future <laughs> in the MCU. Um, but yeah, so uh, so I'm really excited for us to record that, and we'll hopefully have that up for you on Monday, so we can get into the like nooks and crannies of this film. Good tease, Hannah. Good oh, tease. So 
<laughs> but now it's time for our actual verdicts on Black Widow. Uh, Hannah, screen, stream, or skip? Oh, screen. 100%. And I'm like, I kind of want to go see it in a big, on the big screen. I've seen it twice on my on my TV, so I'm tempted <laughs> to go buy a ticket to go see it again. Yeah. Clarice? I, I think there are other movies that would benefit more from being seen on the big screen this week so i would say stream which you can straight away on disney plus if you buy premium access or just wait Absolutely. for it to go free on disney i mean obviously it's not free on disney plus <laughs> free-ish <laughs> on, on this subscription like mm. i i don't think the action was so spectacular that I was like oh my god you gotta see this on that i think you can just watch it at home mm. i'm gonna say screen because it's just damn nice to have a new mcu movie back in cinemas again for the first time in two years. Mm. Um, I never expected when I watched Spider-Man Far From Home that I wouldn't be back in the cinema watching an MCU film for two years. So that's just nice. And you should all celebrate that. We should Look, all celebrate that. You just that. had to live like a Star Wars fan for a year. Don't, don't come at me with... Because <laughs> you're used to getting 50,000 Marvel things a year. <laughs> no, you just get one. No. I need my fix, Clarice. <laughs> There's only so much a Disney Plus show can do. Um, but yes, that is nice. Um, but now it is time for this week's... Hot take! Uh, <laughs> flip hair, I'm out. Um, what was Such a bolzer. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do the, the thing yeah. that she does in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so for this week's hot take, as I said up top, uh, Can is underway and it's time to discuss what the role of film festivals is in the critical conversation. Are enough critics getting access to attend? And are programmers doing enough to secure gender parity when it comes to female representation in directors? Uh, Hannah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I. it's so interesting. I don't know if it, oh God, it's very inside baseballs type thing, but to, to actually get accreditation to go to Cannes, it's quite, you have to, one specifically be going for an outlet and that outlet I think has has to has to have covered this so all these very strict parameters for them to allow accreditation plus you have to pay to even apply which is like I'm just like no thank you I'd rather just wait um but don't get me wrong like film festivals are fun I went to Toronto Film Festival and that was great and I got there and they helped help they did a media inclusion initiative which meant that they supported like help pay for me actually go out there for like flights and accommodation which is really cool um but you know as you what it always comes down to is who's who's in who are the staff or like the the main freelancers for certain places I do want I'm always like how do people pay to go out there because it is expensive um you know I, I don't know if I would get enough reviews commissioned <laughs> to to be able to warrant like to kind of offset the cost of going out there but you always end up just having the same people go, which is, you know, it's cool. It's, I mean, it is what it is. But I wish there was a may, I wish there was a way to make it a little bit more, a little bit easier, where you don't have to. I don't know. I'm just interested in people's personal finances. Like, how much do they have to pay themselves? Is outlets paying? Um, and also, just with the review stuff, I think sometimes, um, I, I don't know. Like for us to be able to see a movie, sometimes I've seen movies obviously earlier this year, and by the time I'm actually going to review them or actually get you know, we'll review on the podcast, it feels like, oh, I've got to go see what this movie again. Sometimes there's such a gap. So I don't know, if, for me personally, like, I don't feel like there's a, a, I don't have the role. I don't know. I don't think I have the space really to, to benefit me to get value out of going to 
paying to go to a load of festivals unless you know someone's going to pay for me to go out there Chloe's yeah I think there is an there's this like sort of weird tension within like festival coverage because on the one hand like the sort of early buzz is really great for smaller films that to give them the chance to get um you know picked up by a, a good studio like a24 <laughs> mm-hmm. you know to, to get good distributions so, so that they could be seen by you know people who aren't critics at the film festival <laughs> i i mm. see that and i I really appreciate it and I see how essential it is. But then, yeah, I always do wonder for like, you know, obviously because we're all critics, so we kind of, we see all the, yeah, we see all the inside baseball of it all. <laughs> and the like, the furious tweeting that happens during Cannes and, and Toronto mm-hmm. and Venice and everything. Um, Standing ovation! It's also very tiring. It's tiring. It's so tiring. Have you, like, to see, I remember going to Toronto and I saw so many movies and I felt like I was doing a disservice to myself and being able to like critically review them because I need a bit of time and space to be able to get through them. But you kind of like, you all have to queue up to get to the main things. I feel like I'm so tired by the time I get around, you know what I mean? I just don't know if I'm, if I put too much on my shoulders to try and feel like I need to see every single one of these movies to keep up with everyone to seem like, Hey, yeah, I've seen them all. I mean, I don't think that's the reason why I fell asleep during Joker. (laughs) (laughs) i I think there's like there is something there's like a wider significance significance to that because that is the sort of issue i have because um you know it's a small as you said a small group of people it's not often not particularly diverse not very representative of the wider critical pool um they're the ones who are seeing these films and coming away usually with quite like a defined critical consensus and we get into this really weird cycle where it's like, okay, we have the the film festival reaction. And then when other critics start to see it and the the conversation widens, obviously you're going to get a a wider diversity of opinions. There's going to be people who have the opposite feeling about it. And then that gets termed the backlash. And then I feel like with so many festival films, then it becomes this like exhausting discourse (laughs) where everyone is fighting because it's like the festival people are fighting the not festival people and they're all arguing over it for months and months and months like long before anybody else could see the movie half of the movie's been spoiled because everyone's like yeah the ending so that they can argue about it so that by the time that like you know oh parasite that was ruined for me that's Parasite's Parasite. No, yeah. I mean, Parasite oh, was like. All the films. But I remember it's like I remember when I finally got around to you. I think I said like, "Oh, finally saw Parasite." And finally seen Parasite. Now I get all your references. But there was so much like people were sharing online because that was that came out really early. That I don't know was it can. It actually came out on, and then it took like a full year, and it'd been screening at so many different festivals. And because obviously the people mm-hmm. loved it, which is great, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's like. It's you need to remember there's other people outside. Like there's a difference between talking about a t- episode of TV that's just aired that everyone can see compared to a film that's not even been released yet. In, yeah. in, at, not even you you can't do spoilers at film festivals, and I think that's a lot of the time that kind of uh, the social media side of it where people want to seem like have these open discussions. It's like get in a WhatsApp group with your critic friends. Then <laughs> don't be don't have an mm-hmm. open forum about talking about films that people don't have to see. That's really I think that's like using your privilege and kind of like showing a disrespect to the, your readers because they follow you. And I think you need to show more respect for them and when, what you discuss. 
Yeah, and I think it just creates a situation that, like, I mean, I, this is the thing I'd love to hear hear from people listening, like, how they feel about it. Um, mm. You know, people who maybe aren't critics, who are just wanting to see these films. Because I remember with, like, La La Land, there was so much discourse about La La Land. <laughs> like, by the time I actually saw it, it actually came out. Like, it was, it was like, tiring. <laughs> tiring experience to engage with La La Land, which, you know, personally, I think is a really lovely film. I like it. Um, I, I love it. But, you know, I think, and that, that happens over and over again, that, like, the, the critical kind of intense discourse that happens for months and months and months, it peters out right before the movie comes out. So, like, people actually going to see it at the cinema don't really get to be a part of that discourse because everyone's moved on to, mm. like, the next festival on the next thing and so it's it's not me particularly going oh festivals are bad you know boo don't go review things it's more like this is a weird side effect of it and i don't know how i don't know how healthy it is for criticism because it it encourages lightning fast reactions it occurs rage and arguments and intensity and and not you know considering things nuance <laughs> going mm-hmm. to sleep and, and yeah. thinking about it and mm-hmm. sitting and really like sitting with it you know you don't really have space for that nuance on twitter get out of nuance. here um, <laughs> <Who's she? laughs> um i i like a lot what you're, what you're saying like i this this has just made me think of access and it's been interesting in this time of you know covid and, and pandemic we've had to uh, do a lot of our work virtually and some of the festivals that have been uh, put on have been virtual festivals and in those circumstances the access has been better because you know there there, there hasn't been the the queue system or anything like that um, everything is online and therefore more people uh, could get access uh, to films and it's just a shame that now that we're coming out of that things are going back to the way they were before where everything was just harder on that respect. And it really matters who gets access to what. Um, because um, as Cathy was tweeted out recently, in Cannes right now, there's only one uh, black journalist there. And I remember, I, I can think of numerous instances in where we've had those hot takes, those hyperbolic tweets coming out of festivals like Cannes for films. But then once sort of more people from the you know black diaspora sort of watches the film there's a whole new narrative that uh the critics who were in attendance didn't consider there's one film that comes to mind i think was nate parker's the birth of a nation and i remember the initial reaction to that was super positive from the festival um but once um sort of more black people saw it there was a whole different thing and you know that that film crashed and burned Fairly quickly, once the word got out. I mean, I think that was um, also so, to do with the fact that the him and his th- co-writer was, were accused of rape. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing about this, but I think that's a big part of it. I think even before that came out, there was still sort of, you know, in terms of just watching, discussing the film, there was a, you know, backlash, if if you will, to it, uh, just on the just on the film basis. People watch movies in bubbles, don't they? In a vacuum. And it's like, sometimes I feel like I can't watch a movie in a vacuum. Again, this is why sort of it matters who who uh, gets access uh, to festivals and, and and what kind of work also gets uh, shown at festivals. I know Hannah, you were involved in a statement that Times Up uh, drafted about Cannes um, because there's only there's a very limited number of uh, films directed by women uh, this year, yeah. and 
that's a shame. Do you want to speak more on that? Well, no, I just, I think it's, if you've still got the same kind of men making the decisions about what films get showing, get showed, then you're going to have, it's the same, you know, it's the same with like the Criterion collection. Like, who's who's in charge, who's making the decision? Who are the gatekeepers? If your gatekeepers are still going to be a certain type of person, they're going to specifically choose a certain type of film and give that, you know, give that a space uh, to be celebrated or be considered or put in competition. And I think that's similar with Cannes. It's like, you know, again, it's just, you're not doing due diligence really if you're saying there aren't enough women because there are. And I think, you know, London Film Festival, the last one we just had, did very well in trying to um, achieve gender mm -hmm. parity with female directors. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, you, it's not punishing people, but I just think, I just think, you just need to understand that now that we need to even up the playing field and allow more people to have voices. And I think the same with, you know, who are you sending out to festivals as well? I think a lot of time outlets, they obviously got, and it's hard, isn't it? You've got people who've been doing it for a few years. It means by, if you if there's only a certain amount of budget that you can afford to send critics out to go out, go out, who they're going to pick. The one person who's the, the, you know, the white dudes who have been there writing for them for years, or you're going to pick like a new person who's actually, you know, a woman of colour, like to go out there and represent you. I mean, you know, you're, you're either breaking, you know, this is the problem. It's like, there's this tenure. It's like, if you've been writing for them, how do you stop writing for them? Um, that means like, you know, shifting and giving someone else, some, giving someone else a part of your platform. And I think people aren't, aren't willing to do that. What we do is we put all the white male critics and put them in Hunger Games. <laughs> Whoever wins Hunger Games gets to go to care. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. My male critics, please don't get mad. <laughs> is she though? Is she really? I don't. My know. answer to everything is do a Hunger Games. <laughs> that would sort itself right out. I do not volunteer as tribute. Ah, <sighs> oh, dear. There we go. But and maybe we'll do a. Maybe at some point we'll get to do like a. But well, actually, speaking of fair festivals, aren't we going to do a Fade to Black Sundance London special? We definitely are. Definitely are. Very so excited about some of the films playing uh, at, at Sundance London this year. Um, and that's happening fairly soon End as well. End of July, um, I think, yeah. Amazing. So, yes, keep your ears tuned for that. Uh, but for now, that is it uh, for episode 19 of the Fade to Black podcast. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is the safest for you. Uh, do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast, and tweet us if you have something you'd love us to shout out next week. Uh, use the hashtag FadeToBlackPod, and follow us. I am at Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Hannah Flint on Twitter, and Hannah at Hannah Ness Flint on Instagram. I am Clarice Liu on Twitter, and at Clarice Lockray on Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm -hmm.